Hear the word of the Lord from Luke 19. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of, his, of the disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? You shall say this, The Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus. And throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down to the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered them, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, What that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Hey, good morning, Sojourn. Peace be with you. I didn't wait for you to answer when I said good morning. I apologize. Good to see you this morning. My name is Paul. I'm one of the pastors here. It's a joy to be with you, to be preaching from God's word this morning. Uh, happy Palm Sunday. Like Todd said earlier, today is the first day of what's known as Holy Week. Holy Week is a week uh, celebrated by Christians across the world uh, and throughout history as a commemoration of the final week of Jesus's life before his death and resurrection. And so today is Palm Sunday where we'll be looking into the passage you just heard Dodds read, Jesus's final entrance into Jerusalem. Uh, and then on Thursday and Friday and Sunday, we'll be celebrating, commemorating really, uh, a few other significant events in the life of Jesus. Uh, and today we have the opportunity to zoom in on this final approach of Jesus to the city of Jerusalem. Um, it's a kind of a fun Sunday because on Palm Sunday every year, we usually preach from one of the four options. Um, this story appears in each of the four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and we preach the same event every year at this time, which means that it's an opportunity for us to really dive in and look at it and ask the Lord to speak to us afresh, to speak to us anew. What are some of the details in this passage that we've known for uh, for as long as we've known the passage, but what's something that the Lord has for us today? And so that's my prayer for us today, that as we lean in, even this familiar story, that our posture wouldn't be one of, oh, we know this story, we get it, Jesus is a humble king, um, but that this is a real opportunity for the Lord to minister to us, to speak to us, to display the gospel for us in a fresh way this year. By this point uh, in the story of Jesus's ministry, his ministry has hit something of a crescendo. Over the course of his ministry, Jesus has been healing the sick. Uh, he's been 
healing the lame and the blind. He's raised a man from the dead named Lazarus. He's performed miracles of provision, miracles of knowledge, miracles of power over the natural elements like walking on water. He's associated himself with turns from the Old Testament. He's identified himself with as the son of man from the book of Daniel, as the shepherd of God's sheep from the prophet Ezekiel, as the healer of the lame and the blind from Isaiah and the water of life from Exodus and Ezekiel and other places. So while even his closest disciples don't understand the implications of his ministry uh, fully, there is no doubt at this point that Jesus has given his followers a significant and powerful case that he is indeed the Messiah that they've been waiting for. As a result, he's been drawing crowds who are following him. They're hanging on to his words, as Luke tells us a few verses after our uh, passage for today, acknowledging that this might just be the Messiah. And so as we come to this passage, we will see this morning that Jesus is doing something far more than simply arriving in a city. He's teaching us even through his actions about the kind of kingdom that he has come to bring. And so with that, here's my plan for this morning. We're going to look at three things. We're going to look at the approach of Jesus, and in that we're going to see his humility. We're going to look at the response to Jesus, that he has met with rejection. And then third, we're going to look at the response of Jesus. How does he respond to this rejection? And we'll consider what this means for us today. So to jump in, to begin with, let's look at the arrival of Jesus. And there's a couple of things, the approach of Jesus, I should say. There's a couple of things that we see in the text. The first thing that we see comes right at the beginning in verse 28. Um, It says this, and when Jesus had said these things, referring to the parable he just taught about the kingdom, of God to correct some misconceptions. After saying these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. And so this is a a very simple observation, but I want to acknowledge, I want to identify for us that this is Luke connecting uh, with a thread that's been going through really the whole second half of the gospel of Luke. Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. Jesus has a very clear mission. He has a destination in mind, and that's the city of Jerusalem. We read about this as Jesus' final destination for the first time in Luke chapter 9 in the story of the transfiguration, this extraordinary scene where Peter, James, and John witness Jesus transfigured into a heavenly body. He's speaking on a mountaintop with Moses and Elijah. And Luke tells us that Jesus appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem spoke of Jesus' departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. From that point forward, I don't know if you've ever, I assume maybe you haven't read the whole Gospel of Luke all in one sitting. If you haven't, I highly recommend it. It's a great way to get the whole story at once. You'll see that for the second half of the book of Luke, you keep seeing this phrase, to Jerusalem, to Jerusalem. His face was set upon Jerusalem. He was headed to Jerusalem. He told his, his disciples, we're going to Jerusalem where all that has been written about me in the scriptures will be fulfilled. And so this is the first thing I want us to see is that Jesus had a clear mission. It tells us where he was going, what he was going to be doing. It informs his actions along the journey. He was laser focused on the task at hand. And in, in many ways, this mission, the clarity of this mission, helps him to say no to things that would otherwise distract him from where he was going. To give just one example, later in Luke chapter 9, as he heads on his way to Jerusalem, there's a story where Jesus is preparing to go into a village of the Samaritans. And he sends two disciples ahead of him to uh, prepare the way for Jesus' ministry. And we're told that the Samaritan village rejects them and rejects Jesus. And these two disciples, uh, James and John, were very angry. And in a fit of passion, they tell Jesus, hey, we can call down fire from heaven upon this town of the, of the Samaritans. Should we do it? And Jesus turns and rebukes them. 
what's going on in that story is that this is a village that has refused to welcome Jesus and the anger of his disciples is a temptation to divert from the mission that he had been given. Now, here's the question. Would raining down fire on this village of the Samaritans, brought, have, would that have brought Jesus glory? Yes. Would it have testified to his power as the Messiah? Yes. But would it have been in line with his mission of seeking to save the lost with the task that he was about to complete at Jerusalem? Apparently not. I've heard having a clear mission described as having a convictional yes that informs the necessary no's required to allow you to do what you've set out to do. Do you have this convictional yes in your life? Do you have this clarity of mission? Jesus certainly does. Can you imagine how different the gospel would be if this story had gone differently? Just that one example. If Jesus had decided to rain down fire from heaven on this village of Samaria, what would this have told us about the gospel, about the heart of God for sinners? I thank God that he didn't do that. He had a clear mission guiding him all along. The second thing I wanna point out, uh, look with me beginning in verse 29. <clears throat> you heard Dodds read the passage. Uh, this is verses 29 through 35. You heard Dodds read that just a moment ago. What we see is that as Jesus approaches Jerusalem, he pauses at the mountain, which is called Olivet, the Mount of Olives. He sends two of his disciples to make arrangements for his arrival. He tells them to obtain a colt, which the Gospel of John tells us is the colt of a donkey, a young donkey, which had never been ridden. Before getting into the details themselves, I want to point out again, this is kind of building off of this first observation that I just made. The second, the second thing I want to point out is that Jesus exercised great intentionality with the details. He clearly gives thought to the details surrounding his entrance into Jerusalem. He does everything purposefully. It's not clear whether he'd prearranged for this donkey to be waiting for him in this village or whether this is an example of Jesus's divine knowledge and perhaps power in knowing that there would be an unridden cult of a donkey here in knowing or perhaps causing the owner to be willing to let Jesus's disciples commission it for his use. It's not clear whether this was something that had been arranged or not, but what is clear is that Jesus is being very intentional with the details. He knew that his time was short. And so he arranged his final entrance into Jerusalem just so. Um, I read a few books, or excuse me, I read a book a few years ago called Techwise Family. It's by an author named Andy Crouch. It was recommended highly to me. I recommend it highly to you. And uh, Andy Crouch is talking about technology, putting technology in its proper place as a family in today's digital age, uh, in, in an age in which our devices are grabbing for more and more of our attention. And at the beginning of the book, the point is made that as a family, particularly with children, but really in any kind of family that you're a part of, it's important to have a clear, explicit mission. Where are you going as a family? Where do you want your kids to be when they're headed off to college? For the rest of the book though, he moves on from the mission that your family has and shows that unless you're intentional with the details of your life together, specifically with respect to technology, you'll find out that you actually have little control over whether you're gonna achieve that mission or not. In other words, a family without a mission is a family without a purpose, but a family with a mission and yet without intentionality about the details is the family that looks back in 10 years, in 20 years, and wonders, how did we get here? So not only did Jesus have a clear mission, but he didn't just stumble into Jerusalem to finish the work that was set before him. He demonstrated great intentionality with how he got here. Is that time? It's all right. No, I'm kidding. Uh, in other words, okay, 
Not only did Jesus have a clear mission, but he also demonstrated great intentionality with how he got to Jerusalem, arranging the details just so. And why are these details so important? Why am I belaboring this point? Because Jesus entered into Jerusalem in a way that demonstrated the nature of the kingdom that he came to bring. In the backdrop of Jesus' actions are a couple of passages from the prophet Zechariah. The first is this, it's a minor detail, but it's important. Would have been important for the Jewish hearers, at least in hindsight. You'll notice that we're told in both verses 29 and 37 that Jesus' approach to Jerusalem is from the Mount of Olives. Just east of Jerusalem, there's this mountain range that's a couple of miles long, and the middle peak is the highest peak, and that is known as the Mount of Olives. According to Zechariah, the Mount of Olives is a significant location in terms of the arrival of God's salvation for his people. Listen to just a couple of verses from Zechariah chapter 14. On that day, his feet, so speaking of God coming to deliver his people, his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem to the east, and the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west by a very wide valley, and you shall flee to the valley of my mountains. Then the Lord my God will come. So this is the mountain, in other words, from which salvation would come to Jerusalem from the Lord. And so as we look at verse 37 in particular and see that Jesus drew near to Jerusalem by making his way down the Mount of Olives, we see the significance. Jesus is entering as the king to bring salvation. The second and perhaps most significant way in which Zechariah creates a helpful foundation for what Jesus is doing here is a passage that you're probably familiar with. As Jesus enters on the colt, the foal of a donkey, Uh, He is fulfilling a prophecy from earlier in Zechariah in chapter 9. In this chapter, Zechariah is talking about bringing judgment over God's enemies. And then right there in the middle of the chapter, here's what Zechariah says. Excuse me, here's what the Lord says through Zechariah. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt the foal of a donkey. So this is the means by which the king bringing salvation will come to Jerusalem. He's going to come on the colt, on this foal of a donkey. So Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives on this foal, this colt of a donkey, brought to him uh, for the sake of his entrance. These were both incredibly deliberate. They were very deliberate actions. Jesus is doing so in a way that gives us a picture of the kind of kingdom that he has come to bring. And the reason he is making this very clear that that, that Jesus is entering, the reason he's entering on the humbly on the foal of a donkey is this. We know that his followers were expecting something different. John tells us in his account of this that Jesus' disciples didn't connect the dots between Jesus riding on a donkey with this prophecy in Zechariah, which John quotes. They didn't connect those dots until much later. That's at least partly because by this point, those who were following Jesus were thinking, okay, Jesus, you're the Messiah. So when are you going to usher in this glorious kingdom that we've been waiting for? See, ever since the fall of humanity in the Garden of Eden and the entrance of sin into the world, God's people had been expecting this promised deliverer, this coming king, this Messiah, who would usher in a glorious age of redemption. By this time, At the time of Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem, at the time of his ministry, the Jews had been under Roman rule for centuries. They'd been under the empire of Rome. They'd been free to exercise their religion, to practice their religion, but it had been in a subjected, uh, uh, inferior kind of way. It was nothing like the days of the great Israelite kingdoms of King David and King Solomon and King Josiah. 
They did have King Herod, who was kind of a puppet king, put there by the Roman Empire to keep the Jews in submission. Um, but it was nothing like the past. And so they were waiting. In their eyes, they were yearning for the Messiah to come and bring them out from under Roman rule. And with Jesus have made, having made it clear that he was identifying as the Messiah, they said, okay, when are you going to do it, Jesus? And we knew they were thinking this because Luke tells us this back in verse 11 of chapter 19. We're told that they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. They weren't just thinking it. Back in chapter 17, we're told that Jesus was asked outright when the kingdom of God would come. See, they were expecting Jesus to come in on a war horse to rally his people to conquer the Romans. But the crowds were mistaken. Zechariah 9.9 was very clear about how this coming salvation would appear. You might have thought in this section where a prophet is talking about the judgment of God over his enemies that it would go something like this. Righteous and having salvation is he. Here he comes riding on a war horse with a sword in his hand to lead the people to victory. At least that's how the people of God apparently remembered it at this time. But that's not what the text says. Zechariah shows us that God's plan all along was to procure salvation in a very different kind of way. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey. At the heart of this event is the picture of a king. And not just any king, but the king of all creation. Riding in not on a strong white horse as a show of power, but on the colt of a donkey in humility. Sitting not on beautifully embroidered royal fabrics and standards, but on the used, likely tattered cloaks of his disciples. So this is the first point the intentionality of Jesus, which points to the nature of the kingdom which he came to bring. Jesus came in humility. As we move to the second point, the question is, how did they respond to Jesus? We see what at first looks like something of a mixed response. I want to read, starting in verse 37. As Jesus was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they'd seen, saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. But some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, teacher, rebuke your disciples. Jesus answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. So Luke gives us two primary responses. Uh, at the time that Jesus receives as he enters into Jerusalem. The first group that responds is the disciples, and they respond with rejoicing. As Jesus draws near, they call to mind all of the things that they'd seen him do. And these mighty works that Jesus had performed weren't just exciting, but they were unique. They knew what they pointed to. They knew here is the coming king who has come to bring salvation. This is the Messiah. So they quote from Psalm 118, a blessing that would have been used to talk about a king with his entourage coming back to the temple on the occasion of a major victory. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. And they continue, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. With the coming of salvation, peace and joy can be proclaimed. These are very similar to the words uh, uh, that we hear at the beginning of the Gospel of Luke in Luke chapter 2, that the angels sing glory to God in the highest and peace among all uh, with whom the Lord is pleased. They don't understand fully, but what they do understand is that the king is here. And so they respond with joyful praise. The second response, though, comes from the Pharisees. Rather than rejoicing, they respond with a word of rebuke. Teacher, rebuke your disciples. When they see the joy and praise of the disciples at the arrival of Jesus, the leaders seek to squash this praise. 
It's been suggested that perhaps this is because the Pharisees were concerned that this public showing of homage to this new king would be a threat to the peace that they enjoyed with Rome. Um, that would upset the peace that they had. It would lead to a crackdown from the Roman authorities on the people of God, the Jews. And this may be true, but it's not likely the main reason that they sought to interrupt this worship given Jesus' response to them. Verse 40, Jesus answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. In the backdrop of that statement from Jesus, there's two passages. One, you may be familiar with the story in Genesis chapter 4 of Cain killing Abel. In Genesis 4, we're told the very ground cries out at the blood of Abel, at this injustice that had been done. He'd been murdered by his brother. The second verse from the Old Testament that's in the backdrop is from Habakkuk chapter 2, which is specifically about Jerusalem. It says, Jerusalem's stones cry out against Israel's injustice and sin. So Jesus responds to the Pharisees. He says, I'm here to save you from your sin. And the Pharisees don't like it one bit. The clear picture we get is that creation is aware of who Jesus is, but the leaders of God's people are not. You see, any political issues the Pharisees might have brought up would have been at best a means to an end rather than their main point. Their focus is on Jesus. Their eyes are on Jesus. They don't like his message. Rather than paying homage themselves, uh, themselves to Jesus, they tell him to rebuke his disciples. Come on, Jesus, this has been fun. It's been a fun act. We all know that you're not the king, so go ahead and tell them. Tell them, Jesus. They reject Jesus. And here's the thing. Reading through this passage, we may be left thinking that, okay, that's how the Pharisees respond, but at least the majority response here is one of praise one of joyful praise. That's the tone of this passage. It's one of praise for Jesus and his arrival into Jerusalem. But that's not actually the message of this scene. We see this as we read on. Let me read starting in verse 41. It says, when Jesus drew near and saw the city, he wept over it. Saying, would that you, even you had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side. They'll tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. If you're wondering what the true tone of this passage, this whole story of Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem, Jesus answers that question here. As Jesus is continuing his journey down from the Mount of Olives to Jerusalem, he is weeping. Not for his own sake, is that because he knew what was coming for him, he was weeping for Jerusalem. This isn't just about a group of leaders. The Pharisees' rejection isn't just about a group of leaders who refuse to receive Jesus. This is about a whole nation that is preparing to reject Jesus. You see, in the backdrop of this scene is a city in rebellion against God. And the reason Jesus is weeping is because they don't know it. Would that you, even you knew what made for peace, but right now it's hidden from you. You see, Jerusalem is a beautiful city. It's built on a hill. Not only is it significant with, with respect to the history of Israel, but it's a, it's a strong city. It enjoyed great peace and prosperity under Rome. It's a city that looks very good. But the cancer of sin has so consumed the dwellers in Jerusalem 
has so consumed God's people, has so blinded them that they can't see outside of their narrow view of things and how they want life to be, what they think prosperity looks like, such that the promised Messiah has come in fulfillment of the scriptures. He has spent years demonstrating and teaching about the fulfillment of the promises of God in him, and they miss it. He didn't fit their expectations, and so they rejected him. They thought they were waiting for a king sent by God for them, but they really weren't. Really what they wanted was a king of their own devising, just as in the days when Israel asked for Saul to be king over them so they could have a king like the nations. Here, we realize that the people of God's hearts are the same. They want a king of their own choosing, which translation, they don't want a king. They want a puppet so that they can call the shots. They wanted to set the terms themselves. And so Jesus weeping says, would that you, even you had known on this day, the things that make for peace. They've been looking around at themselves at what they have thinking, we've got things figured out. When Jesus comes and says, I'm the one who has come for you, their response is at root, we don't need you. We can go it alone. They don't see. Jesus says, oh, would that you knew. They didn't know their time of visitation. They didn't see what made for peace. They don't see that going alone is the path to judgment and death. You see the outcome of their rejection here is dire. This is ultimately why Jesus is weeping. Look at verse 43. For the days will come upon you, Jerusalem, when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children with you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you. Looking back at these words, and looking back on the event, we know what Jesus was talking about. After rejecting the true king and the salvation that he comes freely offering, the people of God take things into their own hands. They say, we've got this, and they try to revolt against Rome themselves, which leads to this awful siege and the ultimate destruction of Jerusalem in the year AD 70. It's a climactic event. It's absolutely awful. It's a, it's a catastrophe, and that itself is divine judgment for the rejection of Jesus that we're witnessing in this scene. Being given over to one's passions leads to death and that death itself is judgment. You see, God didn't have to come and miraculously judge Israel. Their own actions led to their death. They decided to take it into their own hands and that's what brought Rome over top of them. So Jesus weeps. They thought they had what made for peace, but they didn't. And they missed it when it was right in front of them. They didn't know the time of their visitation. Which brings us to an important question. Really, the critical question of the whole story of Christianity, the whole Bible. What is your response to this coming king? What do you really think about Jesus? What do you really think about Jesus? Here's the thing. Responses to Jesus don't happen in isolation. Each of the people here in this text wasn't just an individual left to him or herself, herself to decide what they think. There was great pressure that influenced people's emotions, people's desires, people's decisions in this day um, as they considered how to respond to Jesus' ministry. Clearly, Jesus is claiming to be the Messiah, but there was political pressure. Right? The Roman government had promised much and they had delivered much. God's people enjoyed a lot of money and peace under Rome. There was religious pressure against receiving Jesus as king. The leaders didn't seem to be on board. They were using scriptures themselves. 
they were twisting them, but they were using scripture to explain why Jesus wasn't the person, why they should continue to follow the old way. There was economic and relational pressure. Following Jesus sometimes meant leaving families or jobs. It sometimes meant profound changes in their business practices. The reality is that it's a real battle to believe in Jesus. It's not a question that gets asked in isolation. We're not a bunch of individuals who make this decision in a vacuum. And so the question here is, what are the pressure points for you? When you think about what your response is to Jesus and who he is, what are those pressure points for you? Who are you listening to? What are your favorite teachers saying? How is your heart being shaped? By the gospel, by the word of God, or by the world around? What do you really think of Jesus? Have you settled for a Jesus that looks different from the Jesus of the Bible? Have you rejected Jesus outright? Or are you captivated by the glory of Jesus, even though you don't fully understand and responding with joy and praise? Because here's the thing, at the root, we all fail to honor Jesus. When he comes to us, the question that we should be asking is not what would have caused them to reject Jesus only, but what causes us to reject Jesus. And the truth is that whatever the reason, none of us want a king. Which brings me to the final point. What does Jesus do? We've looked at the approach of Jesus. We've seen Jesus' great intentionality in demonstrating the kind of kingdom that he has come to bring, one that's marked by humility, victory through humility. We've considered the response to Jesus. What we've seen is ultimately that Jesus is approaching his final rejection, which will lead not only to his death, but to ultimate judgment for Jerusalem. The question we're left with is this, knowing that the city will ultimately reject him, how does Jesus respond? And you know, the most amazing thing in this passage for me as I studied it this year is that Jesus, as he was descending down the Mount of Olives, as he was weeping for the city that would reject him, he didn't turn around. What would you have done if you had poured out your life for a group of people for years, if you had sought to explain to them and all they had done at best is try to undermine your authority and say, no, 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 you're wrong about that. What would you have done if you were approaching knowing that they would ultimately reject you and it would cost you your life? What would you have done? Jesus doesn't turn around. He keeps going. This is the gospel. This is the gospel, that Jesus came knowing full well that people would miss his invitation. They wouldn't take him up on it. If we could take him up on his invitation, then he wouldn't have needed to die. If we would have been able to turn in repentance and change our hearts and come to him, then he wouldn't have needed to die. But as it is, he knew what would happen. He knew that even his closest disciples who followed him for years wouldn't understand fully. But this was all a part of his plan. While, while we were far from him, even as he was drawing near to offer himself to us, he gave his life for us, dying at our hands to fulfill the righteous requirement of God in atoning for our sins, that we might not have to taste death as he did, but instead have life. It is for this reason that Christ came into the world, that with his face set toward Jerusalem, he would be delivered up to death for our sake. But it was for the joy that was set before him, Hebrews 12, 2, that he endured the cross, even as he despised the shame, 
so that he might be seated at the right hand of the throne of God, ushering in not just the era of salvation from sins, but ultimately the era of the kingdom of God, which looks nothing like the kingdoms of this world with our pompous kings and queens who lead through their exercises of strength, surrounded with pomp and circumstance, but with a humble servant king, one who appears as a lamb who has been slain, who rode into his royal city on a donkey, sitting upon tattered cloaks in order to give his life for his people. This is our king. Do you see God's love for you in this passage? The more we look, the more we see that everything in this passage is focused on this one thing, the kingdom of God as God intended it. Jesus was clearly intentionally communicating with his followers and with the whole world that this is the ultimate purpose of God in Christ and in his kingdom, humble submission to the will of God for the sake of the world. Conquest, not through, uh, not, uh, victory, not through conquest, but through submission. When the first Adam fell in pride and was cast out of the garden to the east, with him went the kingdom of God on earth as it was in the garden. Jesus, the true and better Adam, comes in humility back from the east to restore the kingdom of God to earth, starting in Jerusalem. Where the first Adam was defeated by his pride, the second Adam conquered by his humility. This is how Jesus did it. At the heart of the kingdom of God is a king who gave himself to humiliation before the world so that he could, through that, secure the victory for us. All have turned aside from this king. The abandonment, even by his disciples, is imminent. But Jesus knows what's coming. Tragedy is coming, but he continues. He doesn't turn around. This is the gospel. You see, the world has one way of seeing authority. In our eyes, we think that strength comes through physical strength and power and might. We think that that is the measure of a person, the measure of their authority. But Jesus uses his triumphal entry into Jerusalem as a demonstration of the kind of authority that characterizes his kingdom. Not coming in simply to exert power over his subjects, but laying his life down, going to the greatest length to save those subjects so that he might work through those subjects. This is the gospel. And so this leaves us as I close with two questions. The first is this, do you hear him? Do you hear what Jesus is saying to us through this passage? He's calling to us, he's calling to you, he's calling to me, will you follow me? In John chapter 12, Jesus, uh, uh, right after this event, we're told that some were seeking after Jesus and his disciples told him about these who were coming to seek after him. And here's how Jesus responds. Jesus answered them, the hour has come for the son of man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. A pastor friend of mine often says it this way, Jesus didn't come for fans, he came for followers. Jesus' intention in his life and ministry wasn't to blow people's minds. It wasn't to tickle their ears with a new teaching so that they, may, they might be impressed and more knowledgeable. It wasn't even simply to die to take away their sins from them. No, he didn't come for listeners or for fans, but he came for followers. 
His, his intention was to die for their sins so that may, they might be freed and empowered to live their lives in pursuit of him, following in his footsteps, honoring him as king and building his kingdom as we await his return. Jerusalem did not know their time of visitation. As a result, they incurred the judgment of God in AD 70. Do you hear this invitation and its urgency? This is the time. Today is the day of salvation. The consequence of rejection is dire. It is death, so come to him. And listen, in the background, one of the details that I wanna point out at this point is this. Did you notice that Jesus didn't rebuke the disciples? I've made much earlier on of, of the fact that the disciples didn't understand fully what was happening. Their understanding wasn't complete. Um, they, did, they were still expecting a warrior king to take on Rome, and so they laid out their cloaks. Mark and John tell us that they were waving palm, palm branches, uh, yelling Hosanna. Those are, would have been, the reason Luke doesn't include those details is because Luke is writing to Greeks who wouldn't have understood the Jewish references to Hosanna and palm branches. So instead, Luke talks about the peace and joy of, of the coming king. But they were expecting a warrior king. And notice that Jesus doesn't lament their misunderstanding. He does correct it elsewhere. But here he receives it and he corrects others who would shut it out. And this is, should be somewhat encouraging to us. It's not like they didn't know what they were doing and we now know what we're doing today. We're still figuring it out. If you wanna know the secret of the people of God, it's that we are an imperfect people. This is a hospital, not a country club. Jesus said he came for those who are sick, not for those who are well. And so we come together knowing that our understanding is not yet complete and yet rejoicing and praising for what we do know, knowing that Jesus in his kindness and grace and mercy will correct us day by day as he disciplines us, raises, up and empower, raises us up and empowers us as we walk. We're simply a family on a journey seeking to grow in our knowledge and understanding of him. And we can trust that even when we don't know it all, our worship is pleasing to the Lord. But it all starts right here with Jesus approaching as king. So that's the first question, do you receive him? And the second question is this, for those of us who have received Jesus as king, the question is, does our life look like this? The kingdom of God is not a kingdom marked by proud strength, seeking to overpower, whether in our words or with our bodies, but it's a kingdom that demonstrates itself in humility and patience and love and peace and kindness, gentleness. What does it look like to take the world for Jesus, to live into Jesus's reign and rule? Too often, our default approach is that of Jesus flipping tables in the temple, which he does one time, maybe two, I think one time. When Jesus beheld Jerusalem, he wept over it. When you behold your enemies or the enemies of God, do you weep over that? We get to be a people sojourn who don't turn away from sinners. We get, to, we get to be a people who with one another eagerly lean in and learn about one another's stories, apply the gospel to our real lives, the places where we don't have it right, and we don't turn away from one another. We instead lean in and apply the mercy of God, demonstrate the patience and love and humility of God with one another and with those around us. So the second question is this, does our life look like the, the ministry of the humble king? Because if not, the question is what kingdom are we building? 
So brothers and sisters, friends, let us be captivated with Jesus. Be captivated with him today and every day so that you might be drawn out of yourself, that his sacrifice might put your sacrifices in perspective. That his demands, you see, his demands on our lives are greater than we can possibly imagine. Many of us need to reckon with this king today. I need to pause on that first question and that first question alone. We need to look at the parts of our lives where we have yet to cede to his authority. But ultimately, we remember that it's not about us getting it all figured out before we get welcomed in. We get welcomed in just as we are by the love and mercy of God. It's a matter of beholding and embodying Jesus so that as we behold him, we are more informed about how we should live. And then as we seek to live like this, we realize, hang on, we can't do this. And so we come back to him and we continue to enjoy his mercy day by day as we demonstrate and share his mercy with those around us. And so Sojourn, today on Palm Sunday, as we get ready to walk towards Easter for the rest of this week together, be captivated with Jesus, our humble King, who demonstrated great focus and intentionality to show us what true victory looks like and who meets our rejection, not with indifference, but with tears of compassion, going to death for our sake. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for your word and for this approach um, that you so carefully walked down from the Mount of Olives, bringing the salvation of God from heaven to a people who didn't even want it. Lord, I pray that you would captivate us with your compassion, that you would captivate us with your humility, that you would captivate us with your love. We need your mercy because too often we do things that we know we ought not to do and we leave undone those things which we know that we ought to do. But I love that every week we come back time and again as we pray that prayer of confession and remember that you gave yourself so that we might be forgiven every time. You are rich in forgiveness. Your mercy is greater than our sins. I pray that you would captivate us with your humility in such a way that grows us in our humility before your throne, before one another, and before a world that so desperately needs to taste and see the goodness that is found in you. So make us uh, uh, more humble, make us more earnest in our praise without fear of getting it wrong at every moment. And just captivate us with you. Help us keep our eyes fixed on you this holy week as we walk up to Easter together as a family. We love you, we praise you in Christ's name, amen.